0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are still in our break-in-between series. We just wrapped up the book of Colossians, and we will jump into the book of James here soon. But this week, we are releasing an older episode of the podcast, a encore episode, if you will, on covenant renewal worship with james jordan this episode originally aired in the first 100 episodes of the podcast we are right now in the middle of our course week on out of revolution a theology of history it has really been a fantastic week of study and worship so far keeping our eye on the summer we invite you all to come to our theopolitan ministry conference in the month of july details for that conference and a link to register are found in the show notes as always we want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching and here is James Jordan discussing covenant renewal worship.
1: I'm going to speak to you without a formal paper uh, on the third uh, topic that Jeff brought up as uh, a problem in the historic, uh, the, the context in which we find ourselves as, as Reformed people trying to think about liturgical theology. Uh, You know, there is such a thing as liturgical theology, uh, but we don't have one. (laughs) When I went to seminary, we had a course in worship, and and we were told uh, how to do a marriage and how to do a funeral, and we were told that we don't have an altar, we have a table, and that um, you should be real concerned that... The newspapers, when there's a funeral or a wedding, they will describe the flowers on the altar, and you have to fight with the paper to make sure that they understand that it's not an altar; it's a table, which is true. I mean, we're the altars. The fire fell on human beings on Pentecost, so now we're the altars. But uh, that that was that kind of thing was what the worship course consisted of. Uh, there was uh, there was no interaction with uh, any of the huge, vast realm of liturgical theology that exists in virtually every other tradition of the church. Uh, No dialogue with it, no no attempt to understand uh, why that exists or why it existed for centuries and centuries. Uh, And so, I don't know, somehow or other I got interested in that kind of thing. And as, as some of you know, I guess most of you know, I've devoted a lot of attention to it. Uh, I want to say at the outset that nothing I've ever written uh, and nothing I'm going to say today is designed as the last word on anything. It, it also, I, I'm a little bit out of context. You know, I think if I were in the PCA and at this General Assembly, I could stand up and say, we've got all these problems in the PCA. But I can't say that because I'm not in the PCA, and it would be ungracious of me to tell you what all your problems are, you know them better than I do. So I have to be a little bit more general, but uh, to talk a little bit, uh, try to get you to think a little bit about some things that we don't have, and the two things that I'm going to ramble about here are some thoughts on the sequence or order of worship and how that relates to covenant renewal. And I think that Reformed theology has tremendous great resources to contribute to liturgical theology. If I read Catholic or Orthodox or Lutheran liturgical theology, it's just sadly deficient because it doesn't have covenant theology, and it doesn't have all the things we could bring to the table to solve all kinds of conundrums that they have and purify the garbage, the tremendous amount of garbage that is in uh, that theology. We could do it so much better if we turn our hands to it. To, To discuss the sequence and flow of worship is to apply biblical theology to considerations of liturgy, because the structure of a worship service is the same as the structure of the entire history of the Bible. When we sin, we fall out of God's history. We fall out of the olive tree. Where does the olive tree start? Well, the first thing that grew up after the flood was the olive, Right? But even before that, on the third day of creation, God made grain plants and fruit trees. It doesn't say anything about broccoli and potatoes. Those weren't made by God until later on. Children know this. But uh, bread plants and and fruit trees, including olives, were made on the third day. Those are specifically mentioned. And you follow the olive out in the Bible, and of course the Holy of Holies is made of olive wood, where the rest of the temple is made of cedar and cypress. the doors are made of olives. And, of course, Jesus spends time on the Mount of Olives. And I'm persuaded he was crucified on the Mount of Olives because that's the only place where you can see straight into the temple and perceive that the veil has been ripped in half. And he ascended from there. So the olive runs right straight through history. And Paul says that when we're saved, when we're baptized, and we're engrafted into the olive tree. But if you sin, you fall out. We're engrafted into that history. It's our history. We were at the Red Sea. We sinned in the wilderness. It wasn't them, it was us. You were there. You know how to preach this. Don't ever preach it, well, the Jews did this. No. We were there, we're engrafted into it. It's our history. It's part of our memory now, because we're in it. But if you sin, you fall out. But what the liturgy does is it represents that whole history and puts us back into it, in a symbol. It puts us back into the vine. Now, I realize I haven't proved that, I've just asserted it. But what I am asserting is that our whole biblical theology has a tremendous contribution to make to the understanding of liturgics, if we'll do it. And the second thing that I would say is that covenant theology, uh, and the, the notion that worship is covenant renewal, and it's not just gathering for praise or for common prayer but it's something very specific to understand worship as covenant renewal enables covenant theology to speak to to a theology of worship of course that raises the question which covenant theology as you know there's about a dozen of them Uh, Klein's covenant theology Marie's covenant theology well not Klein's you expected me to say that so I will I'll say it again. But, uh, no, I think ultimately covenant theology is is a way of talking about how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Uh, They're in covenant, and we are their images, and that's why we're in covenant. And that eternal dialogue among the three persons of the Trinity is what we are woven into in worship. Understanding worship as covenant renewal also solves another problem that Presbyterians have and that you have in the PCA. Speaking to you as someone not part of you. How do you distinguish between what counts as a worship service under the regulative principle and what counts as something that's not? If I wanted to say, sing nothing but psalms, does that mean that you can't sing psalms around a campfire at a Bible camp? You can only sing psalms? Or does that mean only on Sunday morning worship we sing psalms only? I don't believe in psalms only. But if I were to argue that kind of version of the regular principle, or can't sing psalms and you can't have musical instruments, or whatever brand of regular principle you want to apply, what service does it apply to? Well, I have a very simple answer. If you have the Lord's Supper, that's covenant renewal worship. If you don't have the Lord's Supper, You're just gathering to hear the word and praise because you're not renewing the covenant or rather God is not renewing the covenant with you. Of course, I think that in the absence of the Lord's Supper, because our tradition is confused on this point, God does graciously renew the covenant with us anyway. But the supper is said to be the new covenant. Uh, And so if you can define that there is a particular worship event that is covenant renewal. That includes a certain structure, which is the structure of the covenant. And our theology just hands us this on a silver platter. You can say that's worship, and then there's also prayer meetings, there's Sunday night, there's Christmas Eve, there are all kinds of other things you can do that are not covenant renewal. Then you have just set you have evaporated one of these big problems that guys get all worked up about. Where does the regular principle fit and where doesn't it? Not to speak of exactly what do we mean by the regular principle. I'm in favor of the regular principle because man is depraved. Depraved Human beings hate God more than they hate anything else. So we are most likely to pervert worship. That is the thing we are most likely to pervert. And so of all the things in our life, the thing we must be most careful about with, with regard to the Bible is worship. That's the regulatory principle to me. In addition to the fact that worship takes place at the center of the world on the first day of the week and thus sets the course of all of life, for that reason we must be most careful about what we do in worship. So to to me that is a way of saying what the Reformed tradition says by be more careful about worship than anything else. But if you want to say whatever is not commanded is forbidden... Well, then, there's no command to have a sermon in a worship service, so it's forbidden. I mean, you can't get anywhere with that kind of slogan. But you can get somewhere if you talk about it the other way. Well, let me say a few uh, shocking and scandalous things about the sequence and order of worship as a flow. And I'm just going to put these things on the table. We can talk about them in, uh, in the discussion time if you want, or you are... All invited to purchase the things that I've written on this kind of stuff. But let me just give you an, just take an example here of how sacramental theology is often done, usually done, I would say always done to my knowledge. in our theological tradition, and some problems with it. We talk about the elements of bread and wine in communion. Have you ever seen in a reformed literature, any discussion of the difference between bread and wine? Why bread has to come first and then wine? Or does it matter? You know, Episcopalians regularly dip the wafer in the wine. The Eastern Church, uh, many parts of it, they take the loaf of bread and they cut it into four parts and they take a fourth of it and they stuff it down in a cup and they spoon it out and put it in your mouth. So it's mixed. Or we have churches like Lutheran churches that I grew up in. There you go. See, I'm just trying to make you all Lutheran. but We came up in little groups. One little group got bread and then wine and went back, and another little group got bread and got wine. It was just one prayer. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, when you do the Lord's Supper, have one prayer, and then you serve the bread and wine? Well, what Jesus said to do, what Paul says, I received, was, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. After they had eaten, he took the cup, gave thanks, this is prayer number two, and gave it to them. There are two rituals here, separated by time. Jesus served the bread during the meal, and and an hour later, after they'd finished eating, he took the cup. Now, we don't need to put that span of time in between there, but the Gospels make it clear that's what happened, and Paul, even when he tells us, this is what I received and pass on to you, this is the ritual you're to do, after they had eaten, after they had supped. Not modern English. After they had had supper. Which tells me, if I'm going to renew, we're going to renew covenant in here. If God is going to renew covenant with this group, then everybody in this group needs to eat the bread. And when everybody's eating the bread, we have a second prayer and everybody served the wine. Now that gives me a sequence of events. But we have obscured this sequence because we discuss it without any reference to time and the flow of time. We just talk about elements of bread and wine as if they were parallel. But there's some very interesting differences between the two. Jesus said, This is my body given for you. Do this or eat this as my memorial. Okay, That's it. This is my body. Do it. It's a command. Now listen to how... The second part is phrase. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. I'm just pulling together all the passages, the big explanation of what it means. And then he says, "Do this as often as you do it, as my memorial." Okay. Now, there's some real significant difference between the phrasing here. They're not the same. Bread doesn't mean the same thing as wine. Now, what does bread mean? Well, bread is priestly and wine is kingly in the Bible. You know that the priests were never allowed to drink wine on the job. They weren't allowed to sit down on the job. What's different from us is we not only come into the Holy of Holies where the priests could never go, but we get to sit down Let's not kneel for communion. Let's sit. Let's not follow. I I guess I'm going to step aside here, but I get bugged at Presbyterians who decide they want to be liturgical and they go copy what Episcopalians do. That's a very unwise thing to do. They're messed up. We don't want to do that. We want to follow the Bible. Sit down. Relax. You know, you start the service off on your knees because you're in sin. The service moves from tension to rest. Kneel for confession, stand to receive the marching orders of the king, and sit down at table with him at the end. Then you won't want to leave. It's like Peter says, let's not leave, let's stay here. Well, you sit down in the Holy of Holies and have wine, which is, makes you relaxed unless you've got grape juice or Kool-Aid or something. You know, you get shalom inducing wine and you relax lying on those bean bags around the table, you know, reclining. That's the picture. Festival. Kings get to do that. Uh, Jeff has a paper that we published in Right Reasons, and if you don't have it, uh, it's online, or you can uh, tell me you want it and give me a bunch of money, I'll send it to you. Uh, Discussing the whole meaning of wine in the Bible. And wine's always associated with kings. Kings are shown drinking wine. Kings sit down on their throne. They have fought their battles. They come to Sabbath rest. They sit down. They kick their shoes off. And then their servant brings them a glass of wine. That's what kings do. Priests. Priests get bread, but they never get to sit down. Okay, now look at our ritual here. Priests. What is a priest like? A priest in the Bible is somebody who obeys the law and is under the law. He does exactly what he's told. Look at the laws for the priest. There's no liberty of discretion. They're told exactly what to do. Look at this animal. If it's got a spot on it, it doesn't count. Bring the animal to this point, to this qu- quadrant of the tabernacle area. Kill it with a knife. Do this with this part of it. Do that with that part of it. Do it after the sun sets, but before it gets dark. The specific time is given. The specific ritual is given. Everything is spelled out. Somebody shows up with a white spot on their arm. This is how you examine it. If you see a little flesh coming through, it might be leprosy. So you quarantine them, and then you check it again. Everything is spelled out. That's what a priest is. As Peter has shown in his dissertation, which will be available shortly, a priest is a palace servant. He's under orders. He's under the law. But the king is not under the law. The king starts out as a priest, and that's as a servant, as David did. But he matures to be under wisdom. And wisdom is what you have when you don't have any specifics. Solomon didn't have to use wisdom to decide between uh, those two harlots who came before him. The king has to make hard decisions, like a commander in an army who must sacrifice one platoon to draw the enemy's fire so another platoon can go around behind uh, a priest doesn't have to make those decisions. A priest decides between things that are right and wrong, but a king has to decide between the lesser or two evils. It requires wisdom. And the king is given much more liberty of discretion. Wine is kingly, bread is priestly. With regard to the bread, Jesus said, do this. With regard to the wine, he says, do this. And let me tell you a little bit about what it means. And it's up to you when you do it. You get more wisdom and you get some discretion. You're always supposed to have the bread. He says, as oft as you drink the wine. And I agree with Jeremiah, If you had a very poor congregation, and wine is expensive, you might not be able to have wine every week. But you can always have bread, because if you don't have any bread to eat, you're dead. Okay? So you can always have the bread part of the ritual, but you may from time to time not be able to have the complete ritual. Now, all of these are reflections, and you can disagree with me on that. Okay, we, are, we can argue about that. But we can't even think about that until we begin to see that this is a ritual. This is actually two rituals, which is one. It's a flow of time. There is a sequence of events that needs to be done in a certain order, and it's the only ritual Jesus has left us to do. I mean, it's not like the book of Leviticus. We only have one ritual to do, and we don't do it. We don't use wine. We don't have two prayers. We don't let children come. Well, we're not supposed to talk about that thing. Um, we don't, setting that one aside, we just have one little ritual and you, every church, whether it's Baptist or Episcopal or Lutheran or whatever, they have trouble doing precisely what's said. But if we did, we would see it's a flow in time and it has something to do with not just with bread and wine okay it would open up the meaning of it because just as the tabernacle and the temple are microcosms of the universe so ritual is a microcron a microcron of life The, 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 the move from the old to the new creation through Jesus Christ is a move from priest to king, from being under law to having the Holy Spirit where Jesus becomes king. And the move from priest to king takes place at the cross where the bread is broken. You have bread, it's broken, wine is poured out, and wine is given. The wine comes from his side to make the church. That happened in history. Now, the ritual that we do Shows that. That priest comes first and then king. In Israel's history, pulling down a little bit, you have from Mount Sinai to the days of David, 400 years or so, when there were priests but no kings yet. Bread but no wine. Even in the wilderness you have 40 years of manna, and only when they came into the promised land did they find the grapes If you know the ritual of the uh, grain offering of Leviticus 2, you put grain or tribute offering, you put grain on the sacrifice. But Numbers 15 says, When you come into the land, I want you to add wine to it when you are given rest. Joshua didn't give them full rest, we know, but they got some kind of rest. When you get to the land, you add wine to it. Bread is first, then wine. Priest is first, then king. Obedience and then Wisdom. All of that is right there in that ritual, but because our theological reflection does not take into account the time sequence, those are kinds of reflections, which I think ultimately are very pastoral, that we don't get. See, I would submit that every human life has that pattern, that God builds us up as a loaf of bread and then he breaks us in the middle of our lives. That's what he did with Abraham. That's what he did with Jacob. That's what he did with Joseph. I uh, think man gets up into his 40s starts to feel like his life is falling apart. There's a bread breaking going on there so the wine can be released. And then Paul says, at the end of your life, your wine is poured out for others. I just finished writing a whole series of essays on bread and wine history and biography, which those of you that get the newsletters will get. And if you if you're interested in more on that, You can get them. They aren't the last word on this. I'm only asking you to think about time sequence and not just elements. And this is an example. What is worship? Worship is a dialogue. Worship is a time when we get gifts from God, but more than that, and more importantly than that, it's a time when we come and we lie down under God's knife and He operates on us. In Christ, we are Isaac. And so we lie down. And God operates on us and changes us. He acts. In the worship service, he acts as a father of children and as a husband of a bride, which is why the worship leader has to be a man. Some of you know that uh, Descartes said, uh, Dubito ergo sum. I'm capable of doubting, and therefore I know that I exist. Eugen uh, Rosenstock Hussey, Rosenstock, Christian thinker, replied, Nope, this is not as pithy. Responseo esi mutabor. I am going to respond even though it means I will be changed. In other words, I will be passive before God and what God brings into my life and allow God to change me even though that's scary and risky. That's what happens in the worship service. We come in and God does things to us. And we respond by saying, thank you. That hurt, but thanks. (laughs) Thanks, I needed that. Uh, And there's an order to this. He calls us in. He cleanses us. He cuts us up with his word, which is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And chops up the pieces of the sacrifice. Joints and marrow. In other words, he sacrifices us. So then the place in the sacrificial ritual where the animal is chopped up into parts corresponds in to the sermon where the Word of God chops us up into parts. And we place ourselves under that so that we can die and be resurrected, so that we can be cut up into pieces and put back together again. As Abraham cut those animals in half and then God's spirit moved between them and knit them back together again in a transfigured way. That's what happens in worship. And it happens according to a certain order. Uh, I was visiting... uh, in. Well, I don't know if I should try to disguise who this is or not because he wouldn't care, but I will. I I was visiting a Reformed church church real hardcore, great Reformed pastor, Presbyterian. Just as tough as nails. And uh, he showed me his bulletin. And the bulletin was divided up into five parts. And it said, we gather together. We confess our sins. uh, We hear the word. uh, We gather for a meal. And we take the kingdom out. And I said, well, let me show you my bulletin. And I'm not a pastor, but I, I do the bulletin in our church. It said, God calls us, God cleanses us, God teaches us, God feeds us, and God commissions us. And he said, you make me feel like an Arminian. <laughs> and he changed his. Well, obviously both are happening. But which happens first? Well, our theology tells us God is sovereign. God acts first. God acts preveniently. God comes to us as Father and makes us alive. He comes to us as Husband and marries us. And he, he comes to us and He renews the covenant. Don't ever say that worship is covenant renewal where we renew the covenant. We don't renew the covenant. God renews it with us. We just bring ourselves near. And we wouldn't even dare do that if He didn't call us in. I'm kind of interested to know what consecrating the church means. That's you guys at PCA, but the signs all say... Consecrating the church. Who's supposed to do the consecrating there? It's a question you can answer. I'm I'm fearful that maybe somebody had the idea that we were going to consecrate the church. Uh, Don't think so. In the few minutes that remain to me, let me say a few more things about this sequence in time and covenant theology. in the few minutes that remain to me, let me say a few more things about this sequence in time and covenant theology. What I've said so far was designed to show that the heart of the covenant renewal, which we are told, this is not even, the, it's not even the whole Lord's Supper. Jesus doesn't say this bread is the new covenant. That's another distinction. The bread is, in a sense, preliminary to the sharing of the wine. He says that is the covenant. So the covenant, God renews the covenant with us when he gives us the bread and then more particularly the blood of Jesus Christ, applying his death to us so that we can die. So that uh, our, so our blood can be switched out for his blood and at the end of our lives when we pour out our blood and our, the wine of our lives, uh, we'll be pouring out him and not us. Uh, that's, that's the covenant renewal, and that's, a, that's something that happens in time, in a certain sequence, It has meaning, that connects into biblical theology all over the place. But let's just look about, at one other thing, and that is a little bit more about the actual way the covenant renewal is set out, in other ways in the Bible. Because in a sense, every time God acts in the Bible, He acts the same way. It's not as if God has seven or eight different patterns of, of action. When God comes and acts in the Bible, he always starts at the same place, moves through the same things, and ends at the same place. And uh, that is the pattern of covenant uh, structure or covenant sequence. I would suggest to you to start with that we recall that worship takes place on the Lord's Day, which is the day of the Lord. And if we go back and read the Bible, what is the day of the Lord? What does Zephaniah say, which is the book about the day of the Lord? Well, it's the day of assembly, where God calls his people together. It's the day of a sacrifice. It's the day of festivity. It's a day in which God avenges his saints. Well, if, if uh, Sunday is the Lord's day, or when we meet for covenant renewal is the Lord's day time, period of time, That's the time of assembly, and it's the time of sacrifice. Not only do we offer a sacrifice of praise, but we allow God to sacrifice us. The, The day of the Lord, or Lord's Day, is the day that God comes in a special way and renews the covenant. Well, what is the fundamental sequence of the making and renewing of the covenant? Well, here, most of us have read Meredith Klein's work. And, Klein, it's helpful to get you started on it. I don't think these are suzerain to treaties. Uh, I think that is a very bad uh, misdirection of the discussion of covenant. Uh, it's true that Yahweh is king of Israel, but long before that, uh, God appeared to Pharaoh and says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And we are talking family here, not master-slave. Uh, the relationship between us and God and the relationship between Israel and Yahweh was not master-slave suzerainty. It was husband and wife and it was father and son. And those are by far the more powerful metaphors, the more fundamental metaphors, and they're Trinitarian metaphors. And so I, I, I think that that tradition of going off to the ancient Near East and comparing these uh, covenants in the Bible to suzerainty treaties is very uh, it, it has been helpful in causing people to think about specific things and to notice things, but ultimately it's not a good direction to go in, and it's a departure from the way that theology has been done historically in the church. not a heresy, just something to avoid. That's why I said, I don't want to do this the way Klein does. And one other point, Klein uh, analyzes, and we can just take Klein's way of doing it and break it into five points, Five, five points in the covenant because the Father sends the Spirit to the Son and the Son sends the Spirit back to the Father. That's why there is an order here. First of all, God appears and He calls the people to appear and He announces His presence. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But that's the second thing. I am Yahweh your God. He calls them, He announces who He is. Well, in our worship service, that's a call to worship, and you have to have a call to worship. We can't just waltz into God's presence. Not only because we're sinners, but because we're creatures, He needs to invite us in, and He does. It's very important to have a call. It's not—it's uh, not just some accident of tradition that we have a call to worship. It's because that's the way God does the covenant. He calls us. And by calling us, that should be a reminder to us that he didn't have to call us. And that his grace is prevenient. The second thing that happens is, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Now, in Klein's discussion, he says this is a historical preamble and he doesn't do theological reflection on it. And this is, this is a place where a big improvement can be made. Because this isn't just a historical prologue. This is the transition from death to life. This is the transition from old to new. This is a transition from childhood to maturity. This is a transition from not being married to leaving your father and mother and being married. This is every transition in the Bible. And it is the transition out of Egypt and into God's presence. It's not just history. And it's not really just history of what God has done. It is specifically a history... Of death, judgment, and resurrection. That is to say, in the worship service, it corresponds to confession and absolution. Okay? So that when you when, you, when, when the people confess their sins and you declare to them, with the authority invested in you, that uh, God has forgiven them, you are pulling them into the kingdom again, where they have fallen away from it during the week. And that cleanses us. And now, as a cleansed and re-glorified host, we can stand and hear the word of God. Which, of course, is basically the third thing that happens in the covenant. In Deuteronomy or the Ten Commandments, you have the law of God. For us now, that's the entire Bible. We hear the word. And then we receive the blessing. The blessing is the Lord's Supper, where we are actually given the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Father cleanses us and re-glorifies us. The Son gives us his word and the Spirit empowers us through bread and wine. We are empowered to die. Because the only way the kingdom can come is if we die. Except the seed fall on the ground and die, it abides alone. And so what we are given is the ability to to carry forth the sufferings and death of Christ, the ability to carry his cross. That's why we eat broken bread and drink shed wine. So his death is given to us so that we can die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. That's the blessing, the privilege of being united to this work of Christ to die for the world, to take the low seat so that others might live in the ongoing development of the kingdom. What what greater privilege is there than to take up your own cross? Not that it's pleasant. It wasn't pleasant for Jesus either. And then finally, there's a commissioning. Now, I really like using the Great Commission at the end of the worship service. People need to be sent out. Of course, our people are ready to leave <coughs> when the hour arrives. I don't know whose fault that is, but uh, Peter wasn't ready to leave on the Mount of Transfiguration. He'd heard the Old Testament lesson from Elijah and Moses. And he'd heard the Gospel lesson, and now he's ready to stay there. But he had to be sent down because they are demon-possessed children down in the world. And now that you've been with Jesus, you have the power to deal with that. When you didn't, Before you went up on the mountain, you didn't have the power to deal with it. But so now you've got the power to deal with it, and you can go back down the mountain and deal with it. But we, don't, we just assume, stay. Well, we're now we're all relaxed around this table. We've had wine. Uh, you know, just a thimble full of wine doesn't do much... But if you're Presbyterian, you can use scotch, and that'll help. When I speak in in what I call post-charismatic churches, I always tell them that Presbyterians are so stiff that wine just doesn't do the trick with us. That's why we invented scotch, so that we could relax a little bit. Because they always want me to sing these songs, you know, and I'm standing there like this. (laughs) hoping that they won't notice that I'm not able to participate as fully as I do in my dreams we we need to be sent out and and even if you know of course everybody wants to go home and there's a ball game on and their their watches are beeping because it's 12 o'clock still the fact that you have a benediction and a commissioning and a sending out uh, is important for them to hear to take the kingdom out Every sacrifice, now that's, uh, and that's the disposition up into the future that you have in the covenants. Okay? At the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of Joshua 24, Klein discusses that. All very useful if you, if you make the adjustments I would like to see made in, in his discussion and that of some others. But this same order is the order in every sacrifice that's offered in Leviticus because every sacrifice is a covenant renewal. You come because you've fallen out of history. You have fallen out of everything that God has done. And so you need to be reinserted into that history and regrafted into everything that God has done and regrafted into His presence. And so when the sacrifices, the the animal is brought, he arrives. And then he's killed and his blood is displayed on the altar, which is to say it's displayed on us because we're the altar. And that's a transition into death. Okay, that's it. it's formally speaking equivalent to the confession of sins. Then the animal is chopped up into pieces, right? And that's uh, Hebrews 4 tells us what that is. That the word chops us up and the animal is placed inside the altar and ascends. Okay, he is received by God, by God's warming fire, and the pieces are put back together again in the fire and will ascend up into God's presence and into his glory as a sweet savor that God accepts this animal, which means he accepts us. And then there's a meal where the animal is eaten. And then the worshiper leaves. And that's the general pattern of the sacrifice. Okay, if you put them all together and you look at the specific sacrifices, what do you have? First of all, you come when you do them all, and this is in Leviticus nine, you bring a trespass offering if you have committed a terrible, high-handed sin. If not, you bring a purification offering to cover your inadvertent sins—the things you don't even aware you've done. Sin. Then there is the what we call the burnt offering, which is actually in the, in Hebrew an ascension offering—one that goes up. The ascension offering, which has as its focus the cutting up of the animal into parts and going up into God's presence. And then last, and then attached to that, is the tribute offering, which is the gifts, specifically bread and wine that are brought as tribute and as memorials before God, according to Leviticus 2. And then finally, there's the peace offering where we share a meal. That's always the order. Confession, consecration, communion. Always in that order. And that's the same order as the covenant renewal and as the making of the covenant. And uh, my time is up. But... what I'm asking you to to think about, if you haven't thought about it before, it is not to take away from the fact that there is theological reflection in our tradition on the elements of worship. But if these elements are just considered as little grains of sand out there, then we're not not doing justice to our theology of covenant. Nor are we doing justice to all the good work that's done in... uh, in covenant history and historical biblical theology, all of these things have tremendous things to offer to our understanding of worship. And I've only rambled a little bit on them to, to put a few things on the table. I've written more on it in here. Uh, Jeff, in his book on the Lord's service, uh, takes up some of these questions in detail. And maybe in the question and answer session, we can, if you have specific things you want to ask about. But uh, that was that was the thing that I was going to. Put out at this conference as, as part of our concern There's lots of other You know Worship questions We could discuss To do your worship As a covenant renewal Is not to say What kind of music you use uh, Whether you use Robes or not uh, Whether you use Pop choruses Or classical music Or jazz Or whatever I got opinions On all those things too But uh, And so do all of us And those are Separate discussions But I think And I would submit this as just the last point. If we could have in mind a worship service that goes from call to confession to consecration through the Word, God giving us the Word, to communion and to commissioning, every church could do that, no matter whether it was a spoken liturgy or a sung liturgy, whether you use chants or pop choruses. You could do it that way, and it would provide a certain uh, universal. See, I do have an agenda. Jeff has no agenda, but I do. I would like to see all the Presbyterian churches use that structure, and then we could talk about style and music and things like that.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.